back for another Our Beloved Teacher, and I'm really delighted to be joined by another beloved teacher of mine, Kenneth Folk. Thank you, Kenneth, for taking the time to speak about one of your beloved teachers, Bill Hamilton. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Vince. This is going to be fun. Bill was so much fun and very heavy cat, so I'm into this. Yeah, he sounds like he was, and I, of course, never got to meet him myself, unfortunately, since he passed, what, probably in the late 90s. 99. Normally, with these kind of conversations, it's sort of linear, where it's like, okay, tell us how you met Bill and the circumstances around that. But we wanted to start this conversation a little bit different by starting actually with Bill's dying request to you. That's a pretty heavy thing to ask someone on your deathbed to do something for you. What was the request and the significance of it? The fact that it's such a heavy thing to ask somebody a deathbed request is part of the story. Because as Bill was dying, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 99 and was dead within a few months, really. But he found out something, which he seemed to be delighted by. He said, when you're dying, you got the world on a string. He had noticed that if he asked somebody for just about anything, he would get it. <laughs> if you wanted a second helping of vanilla pudding, nobody's going to turn you down if you're a dying man. And so he had really refined this by the time he made his deathbed request to me, because this was arguably the last thing. I think that's the last thing he ever said to me other than, all right, see you later when I was leaving the hospital room. But the last time I went to visit him, this was in Seattle, Washington. He was in the hospital there. And we're talking about Dharma, as we often did. But as I was getting ready to leave after the visit, he said, I have a deathbed request. So he framed this very formally. He knew exactly what he was doing, and I could see it coming. I said, oh, God, here it comes. I'm going to have to do whatever he says now, because this is the setup he's already crafted. And when you're dying, you got the world on a string. So he said, I'm writing a book called Essential and Unessential Buddhism, and I'd like you to finish my book. What else would I say? Uh, okay, then I guess I'll do it. So he said, I've taken notes on this, and here's the drawer that you will find them in back in my trailer. Now, at this time, when he wasn't in the hospital, and for the last several years, he had lived on Whidbey Island, an island off the coast of Washington State near Seattle. Bill lived there in a little bitty travel trailer that was lent to him, along with the land itself, some acreage, as a retreat center. He called it Whidbey Island Retreat. And he told me, if you go into my little trailer, here's the drawer to find my notes. Finding things in Bill's place was easy because he was a compulsive labeler. After that meeting, I think I went back to Whidbey Island because remember, we're in the hospital in Seattle now. He makes his dying request, finish my book. And I drove back to Whidbey Island and I looked, I found the notes and they were completely incomprehensible gibberish. I have no idea what he was trying to say. I have no doubt it meant something to him, but I couldn't do anything with his notes, which were pretty sparse anyway. It's just a little notebook with some scribbles. <clears throat> so I was left and really have been ever since left with this thing hanging over me, the dying man's request to finish the book 
essential and unessential Buddhism. Now, I know what he meant by that because he talked about it. He said he wanted to tease apart the essence of Buddhism from the cultural baggage and the can you top this storytelling that had accreted through the years. The way that I rationalize this now to myself is by saying this podcast about my beloved teacher, Bill Hamilton, is part of my writing this book. So whether I actually ever set pen to paper and write the book, understand that everything that I've done since then is at least part in an effort to carry on Bill's legacy. I'm excited to get into that legacy in no small part because it's not really well known. He wasn't one of the really popular, well-known Dharma teachers of his generation, even though he had a really big impact on a number of people that have since become known. So I'm curious about that legacy. Even knowing him through you as I have over the years, I still don't know most of the story. So really excited to get into that. Yes, the fact that he wasn't better known is really interesting and kind of cool because at the time I recognized his great value. And I thought of Bill as kind of like this dusty old shoebox. Can't tell immediately that there's treasure inside, but there is. And if you are willing to stick around, you get it. But he had very few regular formal students. He was kind of the perpetual outsider. There's a way where he could have been seen as a contemporary of the IMS founders, Jack and Joseph and Sharon and Michelle and those wonderful institution builders of Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Uh, through much of the 80s, Bill was on long-term retreat, what they called an LTY, or a long-term yogi, which meant that you lived there in the dungeon-like basement in some kind of a cubicle made of hanging blankets and slept on a pallet on a concrete floor. But he did this for months and months, and he would be there while all the programs, the week-long and two-week-long, and in some cases three-month-long retreats, would rotate through. But Bill would be there the whole time. So he had relationships with the staff and with the other long-term yogis and with the teachers. It was pretty obvious to everyone that that Bill was a serious yogi. You could think of that in scare quotes, a serious yogi. Because who does that? Who stays for months and years on retreat? And we haven't even gotten to the part where he was a hermit, lived in a hole in the ground in Hawaii on Maui. Bill was in many ways a contemporary of those teachers, the IMS teachers, but he was never embraced as one of them. And I think that hurt him a little bit. And who knows how these things unfold. He just never became a part of that inner circle. But he was very much on good terms and close with all of those people, Joseph and Sharon and that group and Jack. Right. And he also, I know he helped start the Dharma Seed Library, which has become a hugely oh, important. No, he was it. So what happened was everybody at Insight Meditation Society, every yogi and long-term yogi has what they call a yogi job. And he asked the teachers, can my yogi job be that I record all the teachers that I just, every night when one of the teachers speaks, can I 
record this. And he had a long history of recording Dharma talks. That was his hobby or his avocation. And they said yes. So he started recording all these things and very quickly made them available as the Dharma Seed tape library. The Dharma Seed library continues to this day. I've talked to some of the people who work there now or recently did, and they think very highly of Bill. He's revered for having started it. But he went on in the 90s to start Insight Recordings, which isn't as well known, but that was one of his big projects in the early 90s. That's so cool. Yeah, I feel a lot of, personally, a lot of connection with him vis-a-vis that, you know, having started a podcast. And I get that impulse to want to record wisdom, basically, and share that with others. So very much appreciate that he was both an outsider and also kind of helped build the institutions, even though he wasn't an insider in them. Yes, that's cool. And that might be one of the reasons why he, I think, felt a little wounded by the fact that he was not embraced into that clique or that inner circle. But it happened that way. Also, I want to describe Bill. One thing to say about him is that he was just slightly socially awkward. So you can see why, if you think about some of the people I mentioned, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and Jack Kornfield, Michelle McDonald, these people are really charismatic. And Bill wasn't charismatic in that same way. So that's the perpetual outsider part. Well, why haven't we heard more about him? The general public didn't hear really anything about Bill until Daniel Ingram wrote Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. To do my part, so far it's been fairly minimal, so I'm glad we're doing this recording. I tweet from time to time on Twitter. I'll just tweet a one-liner of Bill's. Bill, by the way, was the king of the one-liners, and his one-liners were memorable and pithy and often very deep if you let it in. For example, Bill had this way of saying to me, when I came to him having made a mistake, he would smile. He had this big, easy grin, very sincere. You always had the sense with Bill that you were in on the joke. He wasn't mocking you. You were laughing together, and he's pointing out to you why this would be funny. But when I felt all contrite and I came and I said, yeah, you were right. I did this thing that you said I shouldn't do, and now it's just a mess. And he smiled that big open smile, and he'd say, you'll learn. (laughs) Just like that, that foghorn thing, you'll learn. And I couldn't help but love him. He's a very lovable person. Hmm. I want to paint a picture of what he looked like. Hmm. Bill was tall, about 6'1", and lean, kind of raw-boned, big broad-shouldered, big hands, and tall. I don't want to say skinny, but lean. Kind of like what you might think a cowboy body would be like, somebody who busts a Bronx for a living. But he wasn't like that. He wasn't particularly athletic. He had white hair, white skin. When I first met him, he had his white hair cut in a Prince Valiant haircut with the bangs across the forehead. And always, as long as I knew him, he had a short white beard. He was very tidy, very well-kempt. And he had very big feet. One of the things that Bill used to have to do as part of his job at Insight Recordings, which is to say he was the entrepreneur who ran Insight Recordings, but he had to go to the post office 
every day and he'd get one of those big white plastic crates full of all the mail that had come in of people who were ordering tapes, cassette tapes through the mail. But when he went to the post office, he didn't put on shoes. He'd pull on these big floppy slipper socks with a plaid or a tartan pattern and flop around in these things all the way to the post office. So Bill was a character. <laughs> Sounds like it. All right. Let me just grab a random quote. I have a notebook here where I took a few notes of good quotes that I should mention. Hmm. Okay. Here's one that everybody can use. I asked Bill, what do you think about sitting for a long time and working with pain? And his answer was, you don't have to go looking for suffering. There's plenty coming down the pike. <laughs> you don't have to go looking for suffering. There's plenty coming down the pike. Now, as always, everything with him was deep and complex because he himself was legendary while on retreat for sitting four or five and six hours at a stretch. But he wasn't, to hear him explain it, he wasn't working with pain. He would go into very deeply concentrated jhanic states, and I'm not sure how much pain was a part of that. But as far as advice to me, it was not recommended that I try to experience pain because there was always going to be plenty. Okay, I promised I would come back to how did I meet Bill, and that's a pretty good story. Great. Let's do it. When I was nearing 30 years of age, I lived in Southern California. I was a musician in Los Angeles, playing in rock bands and dance rock bands, and what in California you call casuals, and on the East Coast you call uh, society gigs, but it just means weddings and parties. So a lot of bands that are not famous in Los Angeles well, everywhere, every big city, they do casuals and society gigs to pay the bills, even though there's no prestige in it. But that was my main gig. I earned my supper by playing music. But when I was about to turn 30, which would be 1988, so in the summer of 1988, I said to my friend, who was the keyboard player in the band in Los Angeles, I said, hey, you know that R&B band that you used to play in out of Durham, North Carolina? And he said, yeah. And I said, I heard they're looking for a bass player. If you get me that gig, I will give you two Beatles picture disc LPs. I have Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper's on picture disc. And my friend Tony said, you're on. And he got me foot in the door, and I accepted this job, this gig as a bass player with a band called Cream of Soul out of Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I played with them for about a year, and then I played with another band out of Charlotte for a year. And after two years in North Carolina, I came back to Southern California. When I got back to the place where my parents had a place out in Southern California, 12 acres and some mobile homes and there was nobody there at the time, so I moved in there, and in the mail that had been forwarded was a little white card with dot matrix printing on it. I don't know if you remember in the 80s and I guess the early 90s, we all had dot matrix printers, 
So I had this little card. It said, Western Scientists and the Dalai Lama. There was a series of 10 or a dozen tapes. And if you could spend, I can't remember, 10 or 20 bucks. And this place, Insight Recordings, would mail you the tapes. And this is right up my alley. I definitely had to hear what the Dalai Lama and the Western scientists had to talk about. I looked at the card and the number was a phone number that I recognized of being just less than 30 miles from where I was at that time. So I'm back in California. I look at the card, which has followed me. It somehow got to me in North Carolina from some mailing list and it was forwarded by the post office. And here it is. And I'm looking at it. It says, this guy's a half an hour from me. So I called him up and I said, I wanted to buy the tapes. And he introduced himself. I'm Bill Hamilton, teach Dharma. And he said, and, and I don't have that many people I hang out with on this level. So if you want to visit me, that would be great. And I said, yes, I would. And we made a date that I could come and visit him on Sunday. But meanwhile, on the telephone, something interesting happened for me. At this time, now I'm 32 years old. And I was used to thinking myself as the spiritual shiznit. I thought I was really a big deal because I had had some kind of marvelous religious openings that a lot of people hadn't had. And by the way, I'd been reading. I'd been reading a lot about Zen, and I read Ken Wilber, uh, Spectrum of Consciousness, and I read the, the Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, and Three Pillars of Zen. I was kind of up to speed on the theory of awakening. But within just minutes on this first phone call of talking to Bill, I understood that he wasn't speculating, hmm. which was different because I was. <laughs> and <laughs> so was everybody else that I talked about it to date. And suddenly hmm. this guy's talking about things that the people who wrote the books seemed to be confident about. And so in that moment, something tipped over in my mind, very discreet moment where I stopped talking and I started listening. And for nine years, I mostly listened to what Bill had to say. All right, let me tell you the story about the first day that I went over to meet him. Hmm. I drove to San Jacinto, California, which is out in Riverside County in the semi-desert. Bill lived in one of those, those low apartment complexes they have out there in Riverside County with rock lawns. So this is a thing. It occurred to me I should tell this story. Like, what is a rock lawn? But it's a part of that part of the world. Well, it turns out that in a region that's really hot and dry, it's very hard to get grass to grow and to stay green. So somebody reasoned that, well, what we should actually do is bypass the grass we just put down some gravel in the yard where the lawn would be and spray paint it green. So he lived in this apartment that had rock lawns and the occasional dried out cactus and palm tree, but it was a nice place. He had a nice apartment, two bedroom apartment, and he kept, as always, his apartment was very tidy. He was just very clean. All right. So I walked in and I handed him a little bag of chips and an apple because I thought it was the right thing to do to make some kind of offering. And I didn't have very much money. I was no longer working as a musician and I was now actually working as a pizza man delivering Domino's pizza. So I gave him a gift that was commensurate with what I could afford. 
and he graciously accepted that, and he gave me a personal Dharma talk. So it took about a half an hour that first day to tell me about the six realms of Buddhism. And then he taught me Mahasi-style, Upandita-style, following the breath and noting, rising, falling. But I want to take this opportunity to share the six realms because they've become so important to me, and they were to him at that time. The six realms of Buddhism are, starting at the top, the god realms. So there were devas or devas and brahmas. These are gods. And then there are humans. That's us. And then there's something often translated as jealous god. And a jealous god it's not really very much like a god, so it's important to understand the difference. A jealous god is a very powerful, manipulative creature that wants to compete and win, and they're really nasty, but they have powers. Then there's the animal realm. While the animals are all around us, there's dogs and cats and birds and lizards. And by the way, we are sometimes animals too, so I'm going to talk about that when I finish the list. There's a kind of a creature called a hungry ghost. This is the fifth of the six realms. And a hungry ghost is often depicted in drawings as this creature with a big fat pot belly and a little tiny pinhole mouth. So it's always hungry, but it never gets enough to eat. Bill pointed out that the United States is very much a hungry ghost realm. We're very much into consumption as a culture. We're always looking for the next thing, but we never seem to be satisfied with what we have. And then finally, of the six realms, there is hell. And hell is abject suffering, cruelty, violence, victimization. But there's a special wrinkle here that I heard first from Bill, which is that you can, and you might well ought to, understand that these realms exist in, in some very real way. But not everybody knows that or believes that. So whether you believe it or not, you can see in your own experience every day, we cycle through the six realms. A meditative state, for example, might be a god realm. Oh, everything's good. Nothing to worry about. Very calm full of love and metta. This is a God realm. But then what about when you're meditating and these thoughts come into your mind about some argument? You're hashing it out with somebody and you're getting into it. I need to win this argument. We have these little dialogues in our mind. Well, this is a jealous God realm. Jealous gods are all about winning and dominating, but they're always suffering. Then we find ourselves throughout the day, at some period, we might be in an animal realm. One of the games I like to play with myself, it's actually a big part of my practice, is to say, what realm am I in? Now, if I'm going through one of these arguments in my mind with an imaginary interlocutor, I might say, well, obviously, I'm a jealous god. But... Sometimes you ask yourself that, and what realm am I in? And it's not clear. I don't know. Maybe it's this. Maybe. Ah, that's an animal realm. 
animals are too dull to be able to even know what realm they're in. If I say, what realm am I in? And I realize I'm just really craving a pizza. Well, hungry ghost. And if I'm suffering, just flat suffering with pain or rage or shame or humiliation, these are hell realms. And if nothing else, as I ask myself, what would I like people to take away from this podcast episode? In addition to knowing more about Bill, it's this teaching of Bill about the six realms, because this teaching becomes immediately useful as we notice which realm we're in during the day. And it just keeps unfolding even as we go into advanced practices like the Buddhist Tantra. Okay, I want to tell you about the Black Widow. (laughs) Okay. I started just going over to see Bill every Sunday afternoon. And uh, Bill asked me if I would come with him to his storage unit and bring some things back to his apartment from the storage unit. So we did, and we went over there, and we're rustling around. He's looking for things. And uh, one of us stumbles across a Black Widow spider. And it's always pretty scary. Black widow is a pretty scary thing because everybody Mm -hmm. knows they're potentially deadly poison and they've got this big red hourglass on their belly. Pretty intimidating. And this is something that I'd been dealing with my entire life in Southern California. They have black widows and I would have just smashed it. I would have stepped on it, but he didn't. And I asked him about it. He said, well, one of the five precepts for lay people is not killing. Now, that in itself probably isn't big news. I mean, even growing up in a Christian culture, we know about the Ten Commandments, and not killing is one of them. But here was a grown man in his 50s or 60s who actually followed that precept. He didn't even kill an insect. And I had honestly never known anybody like that to my knowledge. Everybody was more than eager to kill insects right? about anything else they could get a fly swatter on, but he didn't. So that struck me that he was very committed to Buddhism. He was kind of unabashedly religious in this way. Hmm. That same day when we finished up our task of rummaging around in the storage shed, we loaded things into the cars, Actually, my car had a little more space than his. He drove this old classic yellow Volkswagen Beetle, so it didn't have a lot of space. So we loaded stuff into my car, and we're driving back from the storage place to his apartment. And he said, oh, I don't have my keys. I must have left them in the padlock on the side of the door at the storage unit. He smiled, and he said, great moments in mindfulness. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he was being self-deprecating. I personally didn't see that there was much of a conflict. Of course, you could be mindful and still forget your keys. But he explained, he said, there's more than one object of mindfulness. Now, as always with Bill, once he drops one of these pearls of wisdom, it's worth just clamming up and letting it sink in. There's more than one object of mindfulness. So I don't think I really ever bothered, or I don't think it was my pattern to ask Bill to unpack these ideas. 
I understood them as like koans. Mm. I'm supposed to work with this. He had a way of delivering it that you knew this is the teaching. This is the pith instruction of the day. And you got to kind of figure it out. So when I think about it now, even immediately afterward, I pondered it. What does this mean? There's more than one object of mindfulness. Well, it means that you could be extraordinarily mindful of something and completely oblivious to something else. You might be the most mindful person in the world and forget your keys. There was a time when I guess I must have been talking a little too much for Bill's taste about the Buddha, speculating about the Buddha's enlightenment, etc. And Bill said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. It didn't do anything for you. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. It almost sounds like heresy. How could you say such a thing if you claim to be a Buddhist? But it counters this tendency that we have to kind of hitch a ride. All right, let me just talk about the Buddha. I'm not going to do any practice. I'm not going to work on myself. I'm just going to talk about the Buddha, and I mm. expect to get some kind of brownie points to rub off. And he's saying, no, that's not how it works. The Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. It didn't do anything for you. Implication, as I understand it, if you want to solve your problem vis-a-vis -vis awakening, you're going to have to work for it. When I asked Bill why people seem to be going to these long retreats every year, for example, the three-month year-end retreat at Insight Meditation Society, and some people would go year after year, and they were regulars, and yet by their own testimony, they had not yet reached some of the important early landmarks on the progress of insight. So, for example, maybe they hadn't had what Bill called deep insight. Deep insight refers to, on the progress of insight, the fourth insight knowledge, technically called the arising and passing away of phenomena. So how could people sit there hour after hour, day after day, month after month, year after year, and not get to that early attainment? And Bill said, they're doing psychology. Yet another really foundational principle in what I think of as pragmatic dharma. We want to tease apart these threads. Psychology is great. We should absolutely all do psychology. But if you're meditating, you're sitting there thinking about your narrative of your life, you're doing psychology and you're not doing the thing that leads to awakening in this Mahasi Buddhist context. So I asked Bill, what does it feel like to be enlightened? And Bill said, highly recommended, can't tell you why. Now, does that mean that he can't tell me why because he won't? No, I don't think it meant that. He couldn't tell me why. He could talk around it. He could talk about his own experience and the theory. But there again, it points back to this very important pragmatic Dharma principle. If you want to find out, you're going to have to do it yourself. You ask somebody else about it, highly recommended, can't tell you why. Kenneth, there's another quote I've had of Bill's for a number of years that's very similar to that from Saints and Psychopaths. I wondered if I could share it here. Yes, please. Uh, where he said, Nirvana is an experience of the unconditioned, 
which defies any description. Any description of nirvana is not a description of nirvana, and that's the most that can be said about nirvana. There are no reference points in nirvana on which to base a description. That's beautiful. Now here, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are different interpretations of the word nirvana, and they're very different, and they're both valid. We really should have two different kinds of words. One way that I like to separate them is saying there is Mahasi-style nirvana, or arguably mainstream Theravada Buddhist-style nirvana, which is what Bill described there. Or right. didn't describe because right. it's it is by definition the absence of experience it's not a kind of experience or a quasi experience or something that's experienced by someone who isn't me no it's just lights out no experience whatsoever and while that isn't necessarily appealing to hear about it's a quite a wonderful thing to not experience and then there is a there's a what I would think of as a more Mahayana style of nirvana, where you can actually have an experience or somebody's having an experience that is called nirvana, and they're just not the same thing. One time I was questioning Bill. We're sitting in his office by his computers and his dot matrix printer, sitting in those rolling swiveling office chairs, and he's given me a Dharma talk, and then I was trying to pin him down on what is the exact right thing that I should be doing to make more progress. Surely there's some way that you could explain it to me. Maybe the breath following that I'm doing, maybe I'm not doing it right. Can we just cut to the chase? What's the most efficient thing I need to do? And so I would get into the weeds on various ways to experience the sensations in the body with regard to the breath, etc. And Bill picked up one of those little clear plastic cassette tape boxes, but this one didn't happen to have a tape in it at the time. And he tossed it to me and I caught it. He said, you can get enlightened rubbing that tape box. So there again, taking me out of my assumption my assumption is there's something about the breath and there's something particular, there's some way that you've got to do it that would be just the right way. And that's what would get you enlightened. And he says, you could get enlightened rubbing this tape box. Here's one of my faves. One time I went through something probably more than once, but I went through a period where I was crowing to Bill about some breakthrough I'd made. I was really into my practice. It seemed like something was happening all the time, something new. And I described something to him and I felt like it was permanent. Whatever this beneficial change was that had happened to me was definitely going to be ongoing. And he, again, he smiled at his big, fresh grin and he said, I hear you talking. I hear you talking. <laughs> Ooh, that stinks. <laughs> but 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 something about the way he delivered it, I couldn't help but smile and laugh. Uh-huh, All right, that's cool. You got me. <laughs> okay, how about this one? What's it like, Bill, to be enlightened? And he says, suffering less, noticing it more. 
for me, it points to this idea that this awakening process doesn't have a, a discrete endpoint, that it's like an asymptotic curve. You're always improving, but you don't get there. And I think that's pretty neat. It's really cool, although I can imagine someone also finding that to be like a bummer to hear sure. to hear someone who they consider to be enlightened saying that. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, and I get when I tell people that I people do have concerns, they think, well, the whole reason I signed up for this program right. was to come to the end of my suffering, as the Buddha promised I would. And by golly, I want that to be a binary switch. No, I hear that and I relate yeah. to it. And comes right down to it, the things are the way they are. And we have our ever-evolving opinions and understandings, interpretations of the way things are, but my wanting something to be true doesn't make it true. And this is another tenet of pragmatic dharma, as I think of it. We need to be able to tell the difference between what we think and what we hope and what we can observe. Iconoclastic Bill Hamilton quote. We get into these, these my teacher can beat up your teacher kind of discussions. You might go through a phase where you say, well, Ramana Maharshi was the best. And then uh, you say, no, the Pali Buddha was the best. What about the Sanskrit Buddha? Or what about who knows who, what teacher? So I was getting into this with the Buddha, and Bill said, the Buddha wasn't the only or even necessarily the best. There it is again, just taking me completely out of my game. Well, if I can't just refer to the Buddha and end all discussion, wait, what are you trying to say? <laughs> and he's, he just sidesteps the whole thing. The Buddha wasn't the only or even necessarily the best. Now, he didn't tell me that somebody else was better. Mm-hmm. It's just like, open your mind. Because I tend to get competitive in my own practice, if somebody reports and experience, I feel like I want to have that too. I want to find out what people are talking about. It actually annoys me if I think people are talking about something that I don't know about, can't experience for myself. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't automatically mean I do know. It just means that because I don't want to not know, I might tend to overvalue my own practice, my own level of experience. And sometimes when I would do that, Bill would say, there's something you're not seeing. Yeah, I feel like I've heard that echoed through your mouth before to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I aspire without success to say these things in a way that isn't annoying or (laughs) off-putting. That was one of Bill's real gifts. He he usually, not always, but usually could say these things without hurting me or um, triggering my rage impulse, with some exceptions. Yeah, that sounds like a superpower for sure. (laughs) Yeah, and actually it's one of the things that I almost take for granted about Bill, but this is exactly the time to tell it. I never saw him get angry. I mean, how weird is that? I mean, it sounds like you knew him pretty well, like you were hanging out on a regular basis. So yeah, that's pretty weird to be hanging out with someone for nine years and not see him get... Right. Now, of course, there were were times, there were 
months would go by or maybe years would go by during that period where I didn't talk with him. But there was a time, especially early, when not only was I going over every Sunday for our Dharma session together, but I volunteered at Insight Recordings five days a week in the morning and early afternoon. So, uh, yeah, I was spending a lot of time with him. And he somehow managed to never seem to be angry or irritable. To this day, I don't know if that was just the way he was built or if that God, had to do so. with his practice or both. <laughs> I would hope that it's the latter because then there's hope for me. There's hope for us. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe so. Oh, I wanted to tell you just another uh, colorful anecdote about about the hospital. When I first got to Whidbey Island to visit Bill at the hospital in 99, my friend and Bill's student, Katie, Katie Belt, uh, was there as well. And so we both went together to the hospital on Whidbey Island. Okay, a couple of really interesting things. For one thing, at one point, Bill was in his bed and he was facing toward me and Katie, who were sitting in those blue plastic stacking chairs against the wall facing Bill. And Bill said, I have to get up and use my urinal. So he got up and had one of these plastic bottles that you can urinate into. He turned his back to us, but he's standing right in front of us. And so he's got one of those open back hospital gowns so we can see his butt. And he urinates, but then as he's urinating, he loses control of his bowels and this black liquid diarrhea goes all over the floor. And so I immediately got up and called for the nurse and she came in and expertly cleaned him up with a single wipe of a big giant pad and put him back in bed. Now, here's the interesting part. When I looked at Bill, I had the impression that he was happy that we had seen that. And as I imagine, I don't really know what goes on in another person's mind, but I think he was saying, I wanted you to see what it's like to be dying. Hmm. He didn't seem to be embarrassed or shy. No, you know what? Dying people do have accidents, and it's okay. Hmm. I just love that. I want to say it gives me courage, and I don't know that I have much courage about my own humiliating bodily processes as I'm dying, but it gives me hope that I might Mm. be courageous in that same situation. Mm. 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 Wow. All right. As part of that visit, or possibly the next day, Katie and I were sitting talking with Bill again in his hospital room, and Bill said, did you bring me the pot that I asked you for yesterday? And I said, I did. Now, so what had happened was Bill said, If you go into the drawer in my trailer that's labeled, I don't know, pipe and pot, um, you find it and bring it in tomorrow when you come because it's the only thing that actually helps with this pain. So Bill was a compulsive labeler. He had one of those plastic label guns that makes those little plastic label strips, self-adhesive, and he would stick them on everything. (laughs) So... His living space looked like an office. It was all very efficiently organized. So I had no trouble finding either his pot and his pipe or later his notes for the book that that I'm still supposed to write. But 
this day I gave him his pipe and he seemed very pleased in his pot. And so he lit it up and he said, here, take this incense stick and light it so that it won't smell like pot in here when the nurse comes back in. So I got up and I started marching around the room with this incense stick, waving it around like a band leader and I'm singing Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Night Symphony. And we had this kind of surreal moment of all grooving on Ode to Joy and Bill smoking dope and I'm waving an incense stick. And uh, suddenly, a moment later, uh, Bill has apparently palmed the pipe. The, the nurse walks in and she says, are you smoking in here? There's oxygen in the walls. And I said, oh, no, we just lit a little incense. <laughs> Tried to play it off. <laughs> when when Katie awesome. and I talk about that now, she says that's one of her uh, memorable moments. Kind of gels that experience of being in a hospital room with a dying man and singing Beethoven and waving incense and smoking dope. Oh, that's lovely. So human. Okay, Vince, that covers uh, my notes of what I wanted to be sure and get to today. Is there anything that I left out that I should talk about? Yeah, let's see. I have maybe some follow-up um, questions. It sounds like a lot of your relationship with Bill was really personal. Like it's rare, I think. A lot of folks meet teachers like on retreats or through reading their books or listening to their content. You had a personal relationship with the man and he had time to be a mentor, which is also unusual for a lot of teachers. So I'm struck as you're sharing all these one-liners, it's like, it's not just the, it's not just the words, but it was the context and which is your relationship. It really does sound to me like a lot like koan stories where you have this, basically this recorded exchange between people and those pith moments that are kind of coming out. I mean, it sounds very Zen in that sense. I'm curious beyond that kind of like direct human to human relationship and him kind of sharing things for you to work on, listening to your stuff, were there particular ways he encouraged you or others like Katie to train? Did he encourage you to go on retreats? I mean, it sounds like he did a, t a tremendous amount of retreat. How did he work as a teacher in terms of his method? Okay, yeah. From day one, he encouraged me to go on retreats. He said these tapes that we're listening to that we're selling at Insight Recordings of the Dalai Lama and, and Western scientists are, at least in part, studies that were done during the three-month retreat at Insight Meditation Society. <clears throat> and he said, I've done a bunch of these. You should go do this. Now, when I first heard about it, I thought, yes, I would like to do that someday, but I'm so far from ready for it. It would be some years before I'd be willing, ready to commit to something like that. It's on my bucket list. But just a few months later, during our Sunday session, Bill said, I'm not going to be able to go to the three-month retreat this year, 1991, but I've already sent them my deposit and I want you to go. So I've asked them if they can apply my deposit to your account so you can oh, wow. go, right? And I did. 
because he made that possible. Not only did he actually make it possible by paying for a lot of it, but he encouraged me from the very beginning. And it was only a few months after returning from my first three-month retreat that I went to Asia for a year-long retreat. So I caught that long-term retreat bug very quickly from him. And it was because he walked his walk. I mentioned briefly earlier that he was a hermit for some period of time. And I don't know how long, let's just say for the sake of argument, it was about a year, but he was on Maui in Hawaii, up on the side of a mountain and literally lived in a hole in the ground with a tarp over it. This is why when Shinzen Young talks about Bill as one of the great, I've heard him say one of the great hermits of our time and one of the great unsung heroes of Dharma well, unsung because nobody has gotten around to singing enough about him yet, but now we are. I remember reading, I think maybe in Saints and Psychopaths or somewhere that he had done a total of like seven years of silent retreat practice. And of course that completely shattered my mind uh, <laughs> to consider. Spend, I mean, I spent a year in my twenties on retreat and that felt like a lot. I'm trying to imagine timesing that by seven. That's no kidding. And a year a year is a lot. So it is, seven relatively. years is, is a preposterous lot. And it I guess what it would take is a particular combination of enthusiasm and life situation. Right. Bill was married and divorced three times. And after his third divorce, I think he at least for the time being used up his need to jump right back into relationship and just meditated. Mm, okay. I was going to ask too, do you have any recollection or do you know what his like career or kind of conventional life was before he became like a full-on yogi? Oh, I do. He was in business. I want to say it was some kind of finance and he did really well. So he was wealthy until his third divorce and then he had nothing. So when I knew him, he was just hand to mouth. He paid the rent and bought the groceries with the money from the tapes he sold in the mail. And when that stopped, we had one of the cyclical downturns in the economy and everybody stopped buying tapes at a moment when Bill had plowed all the profits from the last crop of tape sales back in to the business and his business just collapsed. Mm -hmm. So from that point, he had very little income, but he played this game with credit cards where some predatory lender credit card would lend him money. And then another credit card would say, uh, you can do a balance transfer. And when he did that, then the other one would be paid off. And he was able to do that several times. And interestingly, he didn't have any compunction about this. Remember I said he wouldn't kill a black widow spider because he was following the precepts for lay people. Well, one of the precepts for lay people is don't steal, but he didn't see it as stealing. He didn't think that borrowing money from a credit card company, understanding that you probably won't be able to pay it back. He didn't have a moral issue. So I think that's another interesting koan for us. I think he has a point, but that's how he felt about it. Yeah. And it reminds me of what you said earlier about the hungry ghost realm and the point about America being a hungry ghost realm. I could see some connection there perhaps. I do too, because Bill was showing another side or another way to be. So by the time he lived on Whidbey Island at Whidbey Island Retreat, 
in that little trailer, he told me what his situation was. He said, well, I've got my Social Security, and I've got Medicare, and the last time that I was able to get away with charging up a card before they all stopped sending me money, I bought a bunch of supplies to outfit this Whidbey Island retreat. And he said, so I've just got this hand-to-mouth existence, and it's an abundance. Hmm. Wow. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Definitely get the uh, monastic vibe, <laughs> self-sufficiency. It's cool. Did you do any retreats with him there at Whidbey Island? I did. I did retreats several times in the 90s, not only just as a yogi, but also as a work retreatant where I would build things for him. I was working as a carpenter during a lot of those years. And so I had tools and I had carpentry skills and I would build things um, like a covered walking area in the woods. It often rains in that part of the world. So you could walk when it was raining. Bill had this idea that he'd come up with, I guess, in Hawaii and also tried to sell to the IMS people. He said, all a yogi needs is a cave. They just need a little box that's basically the size of a coffin that you can live in. And it doesn't have to be the upper middle path. People can make great progress with these very austere conditions. So Bill started learning about ferro-cement. Ferro-cement is where you take mortar, cement, you mix it without the gravel, and then you smear it over wire mesh, and it creates this very strong, light, thin structure. It's another way of using concrete or cement. So we built one of these things. I built for Bill a yogi box out of concrete. On the inside, it was about eight by four by four. I stayed a couple <laughs> a couple nights in it after it was built, but it was so cold in there. You couldn't get it to warm up. And of course I took an extension cord and I out into the woods where it was and plugged in a little space heater. But then of course, when the space heater comes on, it bakes you out of there. And when it goes off, it gets cold again. So I lasted maybe two nights in the Yogi cave. And then I moved back into a tent, which was a much more comfortable affair. And by the way, sometimes I got to stay in a motor home, which was also made possible by Bill's friend and benefactor, Vivian Darst, who was such a wonderful benefactor for Bill offering, and for me really, offering that land at Whidbey Island and the trailer and the motorhome. Yeah, that's cool. And what was it like on retreat with him? Were you kind of more or less doing your own thing and then checking in with him or was there some structure to it? I would usually take meals with him and we would talk every day once or more. And it gets back to what you were pointing out, that sometimes we're fortunate to have close mentoring relationships where we really get to spend time with our teacher, and that's what this was. And it's one of the things I I value as so precious, that he wasn't so busy or so remote that I didn't get to actually have a relationship with him. I was just reflecting on this recently on Twitter about the value that I found in working with mature Dharma teachers, especially male teachers, because I grew up kind of in a, without a father figure that was in my life. I'm curious, I know that wasn't the case for you, but I'm curious to what degree would you say that 
in addition to the sort of Dharma wisdom and kind of learning from Bill, was there a kind of quality in which you were being sort of quote unquote reparented? Or would you kind of look at it that way now, looking back? Yes, I do see it that way. Now, as I look back now over my life, I understand that my mother and my father and my older brother were mentors to me always. Mm -hmm. But I didn't always understand that. I just think I took them for granted for a long time. And so when I met Bill, this is the first time where I had somebody who was a lot older than I was, who was not a family member, who was explicitly talking about awakening and how to perfect oneself, if that even makes sense. But I mean, that's about what we're talking about when we talk about enlightenment and awakening. This is the ultimate self-improvement project, even beyond oneself. And so for the first time, I felt I had somebody who was just a mentor. So you know how with your family, there's all the other stuff too. They're your mentors, but there's all the other complexity of relationship. But with Bill, that's what it was. He was my mentor. I was his student. And it was hugely significant for me. I wanted to ask you about Saints and Psychopaths, too, because that was the book that he did publish. And that's the only way I knew him, except for through you and through hearing about him directly. I found it to be a really fun book. And I remember the stories about being on retreat in Asia and practicing at the same places that Ram Dass was at and, you know, essentially painting this really interesting picture of what it was like during that sort of first wave of hippies going to Asia and practicing. And, and then he also spoke about some of the psychopath teachers that he ran across and shared some really colorful stories about what that was like. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that book and what you felt was the sort of the core teaching there from your point of view. Bill wrote this book and I think self-published Saints and Psychopaths to tell his Dharma story and to make a case that saints which is to say high-level Dharma practitioners and psychopaths are superficially similar in a lot of ways. And part of being a practitioner is being able to know the difference. So he gave examples and told amusing, colorful anecdotes, as you pointed out, about both psychopaths and saints. One of the alleged psychopaths was a cult leader, a woman in New York City named Joya. And all I can say is everybody ought to read the book because the the stories are are really fun. And I want to leave it kind of open, whether Joya was completely full of nonsense or whether she had something going on that looks different depending on which lens you're looking through. It's easy to say so-and-so is a nut job because they do things that make no sense to us. But through a different lens, let's say a Buddha magic lens, there might be some reason why people do things, none of which is to excuse abuse. Abuse is not acceptable. So these threads have to be kept apart. There's something I think all of us who are influenced by Bill should know is that he was part of that group. And I don't know how thickly embedded he was, but the group that traveled around India with Ramdas in a bus, those people knew Bill. And he was part of that. But there are a lot of stories he never told me. So I just don't know very much about that part of his history. But one of the things that interests me about lineage in an unofficial way, 
lineage in an unofficial way just means who are we influenced by? Who are my teachers and who are my teachers' teachers? So anybody who's influenced by me, for example, is also influenced by Bill. So if I have a student, then Bill is that student's grandfather teacher. And because Ramdas was one of Bill's teachers, then Ramdas is in your lineage. I say this to anybody who studies with me. Ramdas is in your lineage if you're influenced by me, who's influenced by Bill and Ramdas. And Neem Kurli Baba is in your lineage. That's Ramdas's guru, Neem Kurli Baba. And by the way, the Buddha himself, Siddhartha, is in our lineage. I find so much comfort thinking of it this way. Now, granted, so are the alleged psychopaths who Bill wrote about in the book. When Bill was writing the book, I gave him feedback on it during the drafting process, and I said to him, Bill, I really like the part where you talk about Dharma and theory and Buddhism and your practice, but I'm not really into the kiss and tell stuff where we tell the stories that seem to uh, reflect poorly on the other people involved. Bill laughed and he said, well, everybody else has reviewed the draft like that part the best. <laughs> what, what's your feeling now? He was right. These salacious stories help give interest to the book so we can take it all together. Yeah, it felt like to me reading books like that, it brings in like a human element into what can otherwise also become kind of like the superhuman hageography type thing, where it's like everyone's portraying themselves in the best possible light and people start believing their own mythos in some sense. <laughs> I think that's a great point. And while this episode, at least coming for me, is absolutely hagiography, but that's me doing it for Bill. Bill didn't do that for himself, as you point out, because in yeah. the book, he shows us human side, the less, yeah. uh, less admirable sides. Yeah. And like, it seemed clear like he found himself getting into relationships over and over again that were problematic in some sense, maybe particularly with women. I think it's cool in that sense to hear from someone their human foibles as well, because it does something on the other side of the street for me. Of, oh, maybe it's possible for me too, because like I clearly have tons of those foibles, and so does this dude, and yet he's clearly awake. Yeah, me too. Cool. Along those lines, part of this series, I'm hoping, is really in some sense, it is a sharing of the stories of lineage and handing that down and recording that, which I think is beautiful. And also, part of the reason I wanted to set the frame in terms of talking about teachers that had already passed is because it maybe becomes a little bit easier to have a more honest reflection about the reality of things. Of course, I don't expect people to like share everything in every detail. But I'm curious, on the side of kind of strife or conflict or tension, are there any sort of interpersonal conflicts that you remember having with Bill, things that kind of like fights y'all got into? It sounded like he wasn't <laughs> angry a lot, but just curious if anything comes to mind. And if that did come up, like, how did it get resolved? I mean, you ended things with him at the end of his life on what sounded like a very loving note. Right. I think, as you point out, it's kind of hard to have disagreements or fights with people who aren't angry <laughs> or, or irritable with you. But I managed. I mean, I'm thinking of two times when I 
told him that I was either annoyed with him or hurt by him. One time we were in a hardware store in Washington State buying stuff for one of our construction projects. And he said something that I took to be dismissive or mocking, and I just snapped at him. And he didn't fight back. He said, okay. And it was fine. I was pissed, and it took a while for that to settle down. But he didn't feel that fire. Mm. Uh, One thing he told, Billy used to tell me, he'd say, you are the first to be burned by your anger. Man, is that true or what? You are the first to be burned by your anger. Now, it may very well be that other people are burned by your anger, too. That happens, but you're the first. Right. <laughs> it's, it's emanating right right from you. Yeah. Yeah. Another time we were at Whidbey Island Retreat and we're sitting, you know, those tiny little dinette lounge areas in a tiny trailer where you're sitting across a table on a little bench, but you're like right in somebody's face because it's a tiny area. So we're sitting across from each other and we're talking and I was telling him something that was going on for me and he mocked me and, and I started to cry and I said, I'm feeling very vulnerable and very uh, delicate and you're mocking me and it's not helpful. And he stopped. (laughs) He didn't try to excuse it or, or anything. So it's funny. I'm basically, I'm not constitutionally well disposed to building somebody up beyond the reality of it. I'm not really into hay geography, but it's hard for me to think of anything not to like about Bill. Hmm. I mean, those things sound relatively minor, you know, in terms of like long-term ongoing relationships. Like they don't sound like huge ruptures in the relationship or things that like you're looking back, you're like, oh yeah, he really fucked up in a major way there. It sounds like these are really human, just like momentary kind of things. Yes. We did not ever have a rupture. Weird. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, know that's not always the case. It's beautiful to hear that. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the other person I've never had a rupture with in a relationship. It's just really rare. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's cool. I guess maybe I have one last question, sort of an open-ended one, which is, in the now 24 years since Bill's passed, you've obviously been teaching, I don't know, if maybe all of that time. How has his teaching continued to live through you? You've talked explicitly about some of the ways and the way that lineage actually is something that gets shared from person to person. Are there other ways that his kind of teaching now, you see it kind of still playing out through how you, how you teach? Yes. A lot of it is by remembering these one-liners and using them over and over again. There was a great Los Angeles Lakers broadcaster, Chick Hearn, for decades he called the games for Los Angeles Lakers. And he came up with all of these phrases that we still use today. Slam dunk. He made that up, slam dunk and the frozen rope. And he faked him into the popcorn machine. There's all this stuff that that Chick Hearn said. And broadcasters today still do it. So Chick Hearn lives on through 
all the wonderful things he said that are still relevant to the people who are calling basketball games. So for me, Bill Hamilton was the Chick Hearn of Dharma one-liners, and I quote him very frequently with my students. It seems to me like Bill would have loved Twitter. I know we've talked about this before, but you share a lot of his one-liners and your own on Twitter. How do you imagine Bill would use Twitter? I think it was made for him or he was made for it. Because if you can come up with that, effortlessly come up with pithy one-liners that survive for eternity, Twitter is a good place to park them. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.